keeping house. White persons are generally uninformed on matters affecting Negroes and race relations. This same ignorance applies to Negroes, though not to the same degree, for they know white people in their intimate personal and home relations and in connection with their work in factories and stores. They read their books and papers and often hear their discussions. Page 436. Do not steal, she said, and you can stay here for months, years even. Her mouth, a red line, she never asked if I wanted to stay there. Each room has secrets. In the parlor, an urn rests near the windowsill. 1905. And beneath, 1917. A psalm. She weeps in the tub. Steam crawls beneath the door and creeps up the window as I scrub soot from the wall. Dirt still finds the rich. I waited four months, and now I do steal. Small things. A porcelain mouse. A black stone from the garden. She only checks the cupboard. My mother taught me to be silent in their homes. They forget you're there. This way, you pass as a ghost. Come and go as you please. Hushed. I learn much this way, of the city, its powers, its promises made. I scour pots and whisper my plans as water rushes. After seven months, I begin to steal food, too. A cup of flour, a brown egg in my bosom. She no longer speaks to me. At night, when I wait in the dim hallway to wash, I touch the black stone. I wonder at my fortune that something like this is mine. Hi, everyone. My name is Cheryl Bundy, and I'm a professor in the comm department. The poem from Eve Ewing's book I'm going to talk about is Keeping House. The poem is written as a series of tanka poems. Tanka are short, unrhymed poems where each contains a prescribed number of syllables. Ewing begins, of course, with a quote from the report exploring the events surrounding the 1919 riots. This particular quote focuses on the idea of white privilege, and in particular, the idea that whites are unaware of matters affecting blacks. The lack of awareness goes both ways, says the report, although it's different for blacks. Quote, for they know white people in their intimate, personal, and home relations, and in connection with their work in factories and stores. They read their books and papers and often hear their discussions, end quote. This idea of whites and blacks sharing the same space, but an unequal one, is part of keeping house. The poem begins with a rule from a white homeowner to a black woman who has come to live with her. We do not know the circumstances here. But the first stanza reads, quote, Do not steal, she said, and you can stay here for months, years even. Her mouth a red line. She never asked if I wanted to stay there. So even under this roof together, the white woman has laid down rules, has asked for obedience. The next stanzas of the poem give us continued insight into some of what the riot report alluded to. Being in the home gives the speaker access to private moments, as well as other aspects of the white woman's world. Quote, you pass as a ghost. 
unquote, the speaker says, while she notices an urn near the windowsill of what is likely a child who died. The white woman weeps in her bathtub. Dirt still finds the rich, the speaker says. With the power differential between them, there's no room for connection or understanding here. The door is shut. Throughout the poem, while we see the private life of the homeowner, those images get interrupted with stories of the speaker herself stealing. Small things at first, a porcelain mouse, a black stone from the garden. Months later, she turns to food, a cup of flour, a brown egg. By then, the woman is no longer speaking to her at all, apparently lost in her own grief. The last stanza of the poem reads, At night, when I wait in the dim hallway to wash, I touch the black stone. I wonder at my fortune that something like this is mine. I like thinking about the title of, the, of this piece as keeping house. That phrase traditionally means cleaning up, daily housework. Here, it means that, as the speaker is clearly doing that work, but it also means keeping as a verb, as the speaker takes small parts of this home into her own possessions. In the end, neither woman seems to be able to keep the house. Both are ghosts in different ways, and for the speaker, the environment is uncomfortable and unsettling. The poem seems to ask, how does one find any sense of place here? This poem has such relevance, after all these decades, whites and blacks occupied different worlds in the same country, and that's partly what movements like Black Lives Matter are working to make clear, particularly to whites who may not realize that. Thank you. Or does it explode? July 27th was hot, 96 degrees, or 14 points above normal. It was the culmination of a series of days with high temperatures around 95 degrees, which meant that nerves were strained. Page 11. Man, it was so hot. How hot was it? It was so hot, you could cook an egg on that big forehead of yours. You a lie. Man, I tell you, it was so hot. How hot? It was so hot, I dropped a tomato in the lake and made Campbell's soup. Nuh-uh. It was so hot, the sun tried to get in the swimming pool and everybody else had to get out. Boy, that's hot. Who you telling that day was so hot? How hot? It was so hot, our dreams laid out on the sidewalk and said, never mind, we good. Hey, everybody. My name is Eric DeVille. I'm an associate professor of communications here at Moraine Valley Community College. Uh, yeah, I say here at Moraine Valley Community College, but really I'm in my home office, given the strangest of these times and days. So uh, nonetheless, um, let's take a look at Eve Ewing's uh, Or Does It Explode? Um, the poem on the 21st page of her book. So, um, you know, when I look at this poem, like I do with, I think, most poems, um, I, the first thing I, 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 I was going to say look for, but that's not quite true. The first thing I see, the first thing I notice is the form the, the physical setup, the layout, and, and, there, and there's a lot of other, you know, there's more things going on in this poem, of course, than just the way it's physically built, but the way, the way it's built, the way it's structured is an inroad to some of the other, maybe the content, if you will, the ideas that are therein. And uh, the first thing that I see um, is just that without, if you zoom out far enough to where the words, the letters are just X's, they don't have meaning. And you just look at the physical nature of that poem. You have these columns, Right. You have this one side, you have this other side. Right. So then 
you know, if you just stop and think about the metaphor, um, the figurative nature of what I just got done saying, here we have this one side and this side's bigger and we have this other side and this side's smaller and they have this middle, this middle ground, right? And that's, that's, that's empty. Um, there's a lot you can do with that if you stop and think about it. So, um, but then also when you, when you get into, uh, the physical nature, the form, um, it kind of begs the question of how do you read this poem? Maybe that sounds like a silly question, but, um, you know, to hear, to hear Eve read this poem, to hear Eve Ewing read this poem, um, it's not the way that I heard it at first, not the way I read it at first. I read it down the left column on my own. Man, it was so hot. It was so hot. You could cook an egg on that big forehead of yours. Man, I tell you, it was so hot. It was so hot. I dropped a tomato in the lake and made Campbell's soup. It was so hot. The sun dried to get in the swimming pool and everybody else had to get out. Who you, who you telling that day was so hot? It was so hot. Our dreams laid out on the sidewalk and said, never mind. We good. How hot was it? Well, I, how hot? Now, uh, boy, that's hot. How hot? Right. So you read this column, you read this column. And, uh, you know, that unintentionally reminded me or picked up, um, reflected another poet, another poem, um, Gwendolyn Brooks. Right. Super famous poem. We real cool uh, pool players seven at the golden shovel. Uh, I'm almost hesitant to read. I'm not almost. I am hesitant to read this poem to you because if you like any poem, if you look at it on a page, um, there's a certain flatness to it. Right. In our minds, we read it with the robot voice. But when you pick it up for the sound and the sense and then and the depth of the language and the dialect of the poet, the reader, the sounds of her voice. Right. This is all me saying, go do a uh, standard Google search on uh, Gwendolyn Brooks reading. Um, we real cool. And uh, it's not the same poem that you read. But in any event, her poem is physically set up in that same way where there's this column on the left and there's this column on the right and it begs ways of reading, right? So we real cool, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. She's got this awesome voice. Where do you hear it? She's like, we real cool, seven at the golden shovel. I'm like, I can't can't emulate her. There's not enough O's and smooth to go explain her voice, but nonetheless. So we real cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. Right. But if you think about the way that poem's built, it's always a line. We real cool. Period. We left school period we so if you look down that right column it's just we 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 die soon right and, and uh again i don't know that um i can't say that viewing did that on purpose but there's this conversation that these poems that these poets are having across time right and there's a part of me that wants her to know that that, that she's entered that conversation so if she was sitting here i think i'd like to ask her that question um not to mention then as form is, it's an invitation to start looking into content, right? And if you look at the content of these poems, right? There's such a huge similarity in culturally, right? So um, in any event, when you have a chance, go take a look at uh, Gwendolyn Brooks um, and check that poem out. Um, call and response, that's another thing I notice when I see this form, right? So, and that has such a, such a deep, 
tradition, right? It's such a deep rooted idea um, in, in the black community and it transcends, I mean, it goes across oceans and literally it goes across time, right? So I think it had its beginnings um, in Africa and um, there's a, there's a cool quote that I came across. Um, oh man, what was the name of it? Sinful tunes and spirituals, black folk music to the civil war book by Dean and J. Polachek Epstein. I'm not sure if it was Dean or Dana. I've never heard it said out loud before. Right. But, um, so this quote is call and response is derived from the historical African roots that served as the foundation for African-American cultural traditions. The call and response format became a diasporic tradition, and it was a part of Africans and African-Americans creating a new unique tradition in the United States. Right. So that whole diasporic tradition, that idea of like a population of people um, who are spread, spread out and no longer where they're from. Right. Um so that that tradition just of of call and response coming back to this 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 first population, so it has its roots in music, it has its roots in work songs, it has its roots in slavery, um, it has its roots in music, and conversation. Um, did I say religion, church, right? That's the first one I can picture that that call and response from the stage, and from the congregation, right? In this poem, I mean, so it's. It, so you're, you're, she's blending all these things intentionally, unintentionally, whatever, but she's, she's blending these things, um, almost in the form of, uh, the Yo Mama joke, right? It's classic, right? So here on one side, call, man, it was so hot response. How hot was it? And she goes through this poem like this, you know, it comes like this back and forth and back and forth call and response. And there's a playfulness in that, a childishness in that. And the voices that are in this poem um, could very much make it seem like there is a childishness. But, you know, the title of this poem alone, it does it explode. It's a super famous, um, it's a reference, an allusion to a super famous poem, right? To Harlem from Langston Hughes. You've probably come across this at some point in school. Even if you don't like poetry, you've probably heard this one. So what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? fester like a sore and then run does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweeten maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode right so he ends with does it or does it explode and she kicks that up into the title and then it becomes this call and response conversation between what feels like kids right there's multiple voices at play in this poem Right. There's a community of voices at play in this poem. Um, and, uh, you know, her touching on Langston Hughes's idea of that, like if you read Hughes and you think about Hughes and the way he presented his information, there's a, an, uh, a playfulness. Um, um, but underneath of it, very, very, very firmly serious, gravely serious. Right. But, um, you know, his, his poetry was, for, for the people. His poetry was for black people um, to, to be able to read and to understand. In order to understand his poem, if you want to pick it up and read it, all you had to do was be able to read, which is its own conversation, of course. But um, but the language is simple and the ideas are complex um, and very real um, and pertinent to, to the, the lives of the people in that community, right? So going back to that, or does it explode that intertextual reference to that poem of Harlem? It's cool because she brings the weight of Langston Hughes intentionally to this poem, 
right? You know, um, the same way that like uh, Lorraine Hansberry did in the late 50s with the poem, uh, like a raisin in the sun, right? It's that same idea. She's taking this line from the poem and calling, making that the title of her play. She's taking, so, so is Eve Ewing taking a line from the poem, making it a, the title of her poem. So it brings the weight of Harlem to this. So now there's another cool connection, right? So we have Harlem, New York. Now we have Chicago, right? So now we have these historical moments that she's connecting through a couple little kids, you know, going back and forth with some call and response. Um, and this is the point where I don't, I'd like to stop talking and pull in some like a history professor, right? I want to go next door and go find someone who knows more about the literal history of these moments and times than I do and let them talk Um Maybe that's our next series, <laughs> but, um, you know, so the end of this poem, um, it was so hot. Our dreams laid out on the sidewalk and said, "Never mind, we good. I keep coming back to this thought. And, um, Langston Hughes' poem, Harlem, it sounds more to me like that dream doesn't explode. It sounds to me like it just dries up. Right. And like it just goes away like that dream just gave up. And, and uh, to say there's a sadness in that is uh, it's an understatement best. But um, so Eve Ewing, or does it explode? If you have a chance to listen to her read that, go listen to her read it. Um, same thing for Harlem, Langston Hughes. If you have a chance to listen to him read that. Head over to YouTube. Same thing with uh, We Real Cool, Gwendolyn Brooks. Thanks for your time. Jump. Rope. On Sunday, July 27th, 1919, there was a clash of white people and Negroes at a bathing beach in Chicago, which resulted in the drowning of a Negro boy. Page 15. Little Eugene, Jean, Jean. Sweetest I've seen, seen, seen. His mama told him, him, them white boys mean, mean, mean. He didn't listen, listen, listen to what mama say, say, say. Went to the lake, lake, lake that July day, day, day. No, it goes like. Little Eugene W, so sorry to trouble you. Rise, Eugene, rise. Calm your mama's cries. Just sit up and look around. Don't let them bury you down. No, it goes like, down, down, baby, down, down, the water's tugging. Sweet, sweet baby, don't make me let you go. Swallow, swallow, grab the sky. Swallow, swallow, dark. Swallow, swallow, grab the sky. Swallow, swallow, dark. Grandma, grandma, sick in bed. Call on Jesus, cause you're babies. No, it goes like. All dressed in black, black, black. All dressed in black, black, black. All dressed in. And he never came back, back, back. Hi everyone, my name is Sandra Beauchamp and I'm an associate professor of communications and literature at Moraine Valley Community College. I was really excited um, that we had chosen a book of poetry uh, for our one campus, one book uh, choice. 
um, and many of the poems in E. Ewing's collection, 1919, stood out to me, uh, and I kept returning to read them over and over again in the historical events that they reference. However, one piece in particular kept pulling me back um, to read again and again, and that poem was Jump Rope. Um, the poem is written in the style of a jump rope, jump rope song, that kind that we as kids would uh, sing as we jumped rope. Um, and they're very, the, the cadence and the rhythm are very familiar. Um, they seem to pass from generation to generation. I, I think my mother was the one that taught me the jump rope songs that I sang. Certainly the, the kids in the neighborhood had different ones. Um, but this particular poem is about the incident that caused the violent events of the 1919 Chicago riot. Um, on a hot summer day in July, a teenage boy named Eugene Williams was swimming in Lake Michigan. Uh, he had inadvertently drifted over to the white side of the beach. Um, what happens next is disputed by the various witnesses that were there that day. Um, some say that Williams was hit on the head uh, by rocks thrown by white people gathering at the edge of the lake or the water. Um, others contend that he was fearful of emerging from the lake um, and that he, either way, um, Eugene Williams died and, and people witnessed his drowning um, and they watched. Um, like so many powerful works of imaginative literature, the poem itself manages to be beautiful, but also haunting. Um, and I would argue that it's best experienced by listening to the poet uh, perform it herself. Um, that's where I heard uh, the first time. Um, so in an interview with Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air, Ewing talks about the difficulty that she has in performing the poem. She says first, it's because she's not a singer, she doesn't think she's a singer, um, and she sings the poem. Um, but mostly because it's so profoundly sad, and I would agree that it is sad. It conveys the tragic images of a boy drowning, his, uh, so close to what would have been, or should have been, safety or saving. Um, and the fear he must have felt in those last moments alone. It also paints very stark uh, images of the grieving family members. Um, the mother, right, who's lost her son, the grandmother, who will grieve. Um, all of this pain and anguish in the familiar cadence of an otherwise joyful childhood game. Um, the poet also talks about the deliberate use of rope um, in the title, intentional to conjure the reality of lynching. She states in the same interview with Gross, so I thought about, you know, the jump rope song as really a way of eulogizing him as a song. And then also, of course, you know, playing with the image of the rope as being one that is mostly associated with lynching. Um, so this moment, what happens to Eugene is also a lynching. And the rope, the physical rope is absent. So I'm kind of bringing in the specter of the rope here as well. Um, this is what part of what's so provocative to me as a reader, a poet myself, but most importantly, a parent. Um, I started to think about how tragedy and violence weave their way early into children's lives. 
um, and how we have a responsibility, maybe now more than ever, to not only understand history, um, have a reverence for it, but make sure that those parts are not repeated. This is a map. Samuel Bass, on account of the streetcar strike, was walking the five and one-half miles from his work to his home when a gang of white men knocked him down three times and cut gashes in his nose and cheeks with their shoes. Bass hid behind freight cars till a Jewish peddler took him in his cart to State Street. A doctor was visited, but when he learned that Bass had no money, he turned him away without treatment. Page 659. This is a map of my city. Here are the places in my city where I dare not go. Here is where the electric wires gave out, and here is where I still had to make it home. And here is the first mile where I whistled the way my granny taught me to keep away the haints. And here is where a baby waved to me from a window. And here is the second mile where I heard the calls. And on this map there is no third mile in this, my city, where I first prayed to die. And then, hearing a single cardinal over the din of their threats, changed my mind and prayed to live. And this is a map of my neighbor's city, where he traces away through the mud each day, the squeal of old wood on iron heralding his arrival, a king of the streets, a conquering hero of nowhere. And this is a map of my body. This is the blood of my rivers. This is the bruise of my marshland. This is the sinew of my furthest ridge. And this is a map of the railroad. And if I could stand and walk... I could make it all the way back to my granny, pinching snuff and humming. And if she looked up, she would say, Boy, my baby, where you been all this time? Hi, my name's Erica Deiters. I think what's most interesting to me about Eve Ewing's book is the concept. She begins or introduces each poem with an excerpt from the 1922 report entitled The Negro in Chicago, a study on race relations and race riots. It was composed by six black men and six white men. And she uses excerpts, um, I think as triggers for the poems, ideas, inspiration um, for the poems that follow. Most of the poems that she's written are narrative poems. They, they follow the story um, that was presented within the report. For example, I'm looking at This is a Map on page 43 of the book. Um, the excerpt from the report is about Samuel Bass, who was um, attacked, knocked down by a gang of white men um, three times, and he was finally... Um, helped a bit by, according to the report, a Jewish peddler. But when the doctor realized that he, Samuel Bass, had no money, um, he was turned away and had no treatment. So, again, she uses these stories from the report in the narrative, the story of the poem. Um, typically, when I teach or read book-length works of poetry, um, of course, we're looking for common themes, you know, what's something that's important to the poet that he or she's writing about. And, and clearly, um, 
the Negro in Chicago, that experience in 1919 is an important topic for Eve Ewing. This is the theme that she's trying to present and how timely, you know, a hundred years later. Um, but also typically when I read book length works and have my students read book length works, we also look for common denominators in stylistic choices. Um, what kinds of poems do the poets write? What choices um, do they seem to favor and use in their, in their poetry? Um, and what I found really interesting about Ewing's poems is that they vary stylistically. Um, again, a lot of them are narrative, but a lot of them are prose poems. So instead of strict lines and stanzas, she's writing sentences in a paragraph. Um, some are meta poems, poems that are about poetry themselves. Some rhyme, some don't. Uh, this is a map, to me, is a list poem. And a list poem um, is characterized by the repetition that's used at the beginnings of lines. Um, here are the places, here is where, here's the first mile, this is a map of my city, and this is a map, there is no third mile, this is a map of my neighbor's city, this is a map of my body. Um, and then actually, in reading this kind of listiness, this list poem, it made me think of what's called a short short, or um, flash fiction. Um, and some people call flash fiction really short stories, um, prose poems. And this one is called Girl, and it's by Jamaica Kincaid, another black author writing about cultural black experiences. Um, and just some excerpts from Kincaid's Girl, and maybe you'll hear the, the echoes. Wash the white clothes on Monday and put them on the stone heap. Wash the color clothes on Tuesday and put them on the clothesline to dry. This is how to hem a dress. This is how you iron your father's khaki shirt. This is how you grow okra. This is how you smile to someone you don't like too much. This is how you smile to someone you don't like at all. Um, and again, that's just a few lines from the story, but you can kind of hear that listiness and that echo. And um, um, in This is a Map, the speaker is giving a tour of the map, the city, the neighborhood. Um, in Kincaid's piece, it's talking about the girl experience, the woman experience, um, and it gets into some sexism experience. Um, I think with this is a map, that listiness is just kind of this build, it's kind of this ordinary, like this is this place, and this is the first mile, and this is the second mile, and this is my whole life that I've lived forever in this place. And then we get to that last line is a doozy. This is a map of my body. And I wondered, is that a map of my body in that um, it's equated to the map of the city? I am the city? Um, or is it again looking at Samuel Bass and the abuse that he underwent and the lack of treatment that he received? And this is my body. Um, the scars maybe look like a map, or this is my body, I am a person, and I deserve to be treated. Um, so that's just a tiny bit of my take on This is a Map by Eve Ewing. Thanks. Countless Schemes
Countless schemes have been proposed for solving or dismissing this problem, most of them impractical or impossible. Of this class are such proposals as 1. The deportation of 12 million Negroes to Africa. 2. The establishment of a separate Negro state in the United States. 3. Complete separation and segregation from the whites and the establishment of a caste system or peasant class. And 4. Hope for a solution through the dying out of the Negro race. Page 23. 1. You don't have enough boats. We came here head to toe, and now we are millions, and now we demand to sit upright, and so you don't have enough boats. 2. You would give us the most wretched desert, not the desert of our fathers where God is watching and manna comes down like the snow. You would give us all that is barren. You would give our children sand to eat. 3. We've been had that. 4. You said, hope for a solution through the dying out of the Negro race. Hope for a solution through the dying out of the Negro. Hope for a solution through the dying out. You said hope for the Negro dying. Hope through the dying. Hope for the dying out. The solution dying. You said dying. The Negro. The Negro dying. The Negro hope. Hope. The Negro. You said hope for dying. Hope dying. 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 You said hope. How does it feel to be a problem, wrote the civil rights activist and writer W.E.B. Du Bois. After the 1919 riots, when a committee of six white and six black men were asked to research ways future riots could be prevented, the men reported, and I quote, the impossible countless schemes that other people proposed to solve race issues. In other words, society has constructed the African American as a problem and simultaneously created countless schemes to solve the problem. Challenging and responding to these schemes is professor and poet Eve Ewing. She wrote a poem called Countless Schemes. If you look at her poem, you will notice it is divided into four segments. This is because she responds to one of the four schemes in each segment of her poem. The first scheme plans for the deportation of 12 million Negroes to Africa. Ewing responds to and challenges the unnamed schemers by stating, you don't have enough boats. The response is significant because the boats are the tools used to uproot and dispossess a people against their will. When she repeats the slide, she stresses that the schemers do not have the right 
to forcefully remove African Americans and repeat the tragic history of forceful removal once again. Ewing also brings attention to the history of African American suffering that is dismissed by the schemers. She calls attention to the collective African American we that came here head to toe and later became millions and now demands to sit upright. The second scheme plans for the establishment of a separate Negro state in the United States, and e-viewing challenges this proposal by exposing the schemer's plans to bring even more hardships to African Americans. Using strong images, she tells the schemers they would give African Americans the wretched desert and African-American children sand to eat. Because the schemers chose to completely disregard African-American history, Ewing reminds them of the rich African-American heritage of a shared original home, and I quote, where God is watching and manna comes down like snow. In the third segment of her poem, Ewing no longer details specific incidents of historical injustice. The third scheme itself paints a clear picture of abuses against African Americans. It proposes complete separation, the segregation, the creation of a caste system, the creation of a peasant class. Ewing reminds the schemers that they have already put these plans into practice. In case they forgot, she reminds them with four words, we been had that and leaves these words to resonate the burdens of those practices on their own. The fourth proposed scheme is incredibly disturbing and sinister. The schemers have proposed, and I quote, hope for a solution through the dying out of the Negro race. This time when she responds, Ewing does not add additional words to her response. 
she only uses the words in the scheme. She drops some of the original words and keeps repeating them. She erases the word Negro. She lets readers see this is what the schemers want erased. She drops and slightly rearranges the word choice of the original. No matter how she rearranges the original word choice and repeats them, Ewing shows the words continue to express the same inhumane wish for the African-American community to die. Ewing repeats that it is the schemers who wish for the death of the African-Americans. She points to them and identifies that they are the authors of these inhumane wishes. In the end, Ewing ends her poem saying, and I quote, you said hope. How can hope, the thing that has saved humanity, become tainted with a death wish? How can hope be paired with its contradiction, the death of a people? Ewing lays the blame on the schemers. She points to the schemers that their hope relies on the death of the African-American community.